We have actually just got back from Australia. That could be why you haven't seen my face for a while. Um, I was out there for my brother's wedding. And um, when they first started planning in October the year before, so last year, they are, invited me to be the MC. It kind of makes sense. I'm the loudest character in my family at times. So they invited me. And I remember at the time feeling a bit nervous about it. And I... <laughs> But I, but I forgot quickly because I was too then panicked about how we were going to save the money to get out to go to Australia. And it wasn't until I landed after the 26-hour flight and my mum says, oh yeah, there's a list of do's and don'ts for you at the wedding. And I thought, what do you mean? What, 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 do, I was, wasn't worried about the do's, I was worried about the don'ts. What could I say, not say, what could I wear? I was really starting to panic. And then I thought, maybe it's not about me, maybe it's about the guests. Maybe they're not allowed to take photos of the bride when she walks down the aisle. Maybe they're not allowed to take their drinks to a certain part of the venue. And I started to think that I would mess it up somehow. And that all of the things that I wasn't meant to do or people weren't meant to do were on me and I would get it wrong and I started to panic and think that I wasn't going to be good enough. And apart from confusing dance and dance and announcing someone as Grant instead of Grant, I didn't really get that much wrong. And actually... I'd forgotten a really key thing. The do's and don'ts were more about just getting people where they needed to be, but it, I'd forgotten who it was that had asked me to do it. And I got so worried that I'd get it wrong, but I'd forgotten that my brother is the most laid-back man on the planet, so he didn't care. And actually, at the end of the day, it wasn't about what I did or didn't do or said or didn't say or how I said it, but it was actually they were just so grateful that I was there to say it at all. And it got me thinking a lot about faith and about um, our relationship with God, because quite often I think we focus on the do's and the don'ts. What we feel like God is asking us to do, is he asking us to do something? How is he asking us to do it? And we forget about who it is that's doing the asking. So I wanted to share a little bit about what I think about that this morning. Um, a few weeks ago, as Ben mentioned, we started looking about the Gospel of Mark, and we're exploring this idea of heaven at hand. And we're looking at what Jesus is doing and how he is bringing heaven and earth back together again after they were split apart in the fall. And in Mark 1, it says in verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And each week for the next few weeks, um, we're looking at different moments in Mark's gospel where we see Jesus talk about and demonstrate what it is to bring heaven in hand. And it's actually quite a hard gospel to speak from. Um, I don't know how many of you have actually ever read it, but there's a lot going on in each one of the chapters. In the first chapter, there's healing after healing. And in chapter two, Jesus makes two incredible statements where he says, the son of man, which is how he referred to himself, he has authority on earth to forgive sins and that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And in Mark 3, we start to see more things happen and, and more healings, but we also start to see the tension that's being created because people around Jesus want him to stop rocking the boat. And the gospel has a lot of pace to it because Mark is trying to draw our attention not only to what Jesus is saying, but specifically what he's doing in order to show us who he is. So in Mark 3, we see this. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. And since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. And then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. And he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. And then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. And at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot to kill Jesus. Now you may be feeling a bit of deja vu because Ben actually spoke about some of this passage last week when he touched on the statement that Jesus made about being Lord of the Sabbath. But it's important that we read and we understand these two passages together because they're intrinsically linked. They speak about and demonstrate a really radically life-changing way that Jesus is at work. In the first part of the story, um, in Mark 2, Jesus rejects the objection of the religious leaders about the work his disciples are doing on the Sabbath by picking grain. And he declares himself to be the source of rest. He declares himself to be the place that people need to go in order to receive the rest they're looking for. And that was all unpacked last week. So in this week, we get to pick up and see Jesus demonstrate giving that rest. First, he talks about being the source of it, and then he goes and gives it out. Um, Now, the first mention of the Sabbath is actually in Genesis 2, when God creates the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. Um, and the first time, but the first time it begins to be explained is not actually until Exodus, when God commands that the seventh day be a day of rest. In Exodus 20, it says, For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but on the seventh day he rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Rest and holiness. Those were the characteristics of the first Sabbath. See, God designed everything, and in the Sabbath day, we could rest and enjoy him. It's designed so that we would have everything we need in a place of rest and fellowship with his presence. But this understanding of the Sabbath was lost through the history of Israel. They stopped trusting God to take care of everything they needed and trusting him for that place of rest. They wanted their own power, their own control, and more of their own stuff. And eventually, the day of rest became so corrupted by the religious leaders that it becomes characterized by rules and restrictions and becomes all about the work and all the ways you're not allowed to do it, not allowed to think about it, not allowed to think about doing it, not allowed to even be seen like you're thinking about doing it. They had misunderstood the commandment of the Sabbath and taken all the emphasis off the rest and put it all into the work. It wasn't about freedom and restoration and it became about restriction and control. And the punishment for breaking the Sabbath could be physical, It could be uh, social and emotional, you could be isolated, and it could be death. So in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus heal many people, and he seems to not agree with what everybody thinks about the Sabbath. So the next scene, when we see him walk into a synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man in front of him who needs healing, there's an immediate tension. There's a cliffhanger, if I ever did see one. Because Jesus has been healing and he's been working on the Sabbath. So the question in everyone's mind at this point is not, can he do it? It's not even, will he do it? It's, will he do it today? Verse two, since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. 
It's worth noting here that there is a governing principle to Sabbath law in Jewish tradition. And actually it says that you are required to break all Sabbath laws in order to save a life. Life governs the principle of the Sabbath, even if it's been a bit distorted. It's not simply allowed, it's required. And that's what makes this next part so powerful. In verse three, Jesus turns to the man with the deformed hand and says, come and stand in front of everyone. And then he turns to his critics and he says, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? And they wouldn't answer him. So does the law permit good deeds or evil? I imagine all the leaders in the room were rightly thinking, good deeds, it's a day for good deeds. And then he says, okay, so is it a day to save life or to destroy it? And here's the divider. Because you're required to break the Sabbath law in order to save a life, but everyone in the synagogue would have been thinking the same thing. They would have looked at Jesus and looked at the man and thought, this isn't a life or death situation. The man had either suffered a terrible incident, had been born with this disfiguration, or developed it as a physical condition. Either way, it was like that yesterday, it would be like that tomorrow, and it imposed no immediate threat to his life. And the Pharisees refused to answer them, maybe because they were thinking, yes, it's a day for good deeds, yes, it's a day to save life, but no. That guy doesn't fit our criteria. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is, he demonstrates the complete opposite. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts in verse five. And he says to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. See, Jesus wasn't interested in fitting into a set of criteria or for the condition to be life-threatening because as far as he he was concerned, the man was suffering from a life-threatening condition. He wasn't in relationship with God. He wasn't experiencing that deep rest and peace that he was lord over. The man had a physical condition that left him isolated and broken in the present. Now back then, um, for the majority of men, working with their hands was their livelihood. And actually, in the town where I grew up, that's still very, very much a fact today. Um, And because it doesn't say that the man was teaching in the synagogue, it's likely that this man in our story would have worked as a trade and worked um, with his hands, none of which he could do anymore which meant that he was unable to work and by social standards, unemployable. So if he had a family, he could no longer provide. And if he didn't have a family, no one would wanna be with him because he couldn't provide for them. His only way to survive was to sit in the synagogue and wait for the kindness of others and endure their ridicule. And each and every day, I imagine he would have sat there waiting, wondering what's the point. And then one day Jesus walks in. And and it says, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. And now initially, this sounds really exciting. He walks in and he's noticed. And for us, as readers of the book of Mark, we see Jesus do amazing things and we're expecting that. But this guy was sitting there and I wonder how much he knew. True, stories had been around Jesus was healing people, but had he heard them? And what did it mean for him? And when Jesus said to the man, come and stand in front of everyone, I wonder if he was terrified. Had he looked up yet? Or had he just been, been told to come here like he'd been told before and just done what he'd been told? Did he know who was in front of him? 
Or is this just going to be another demonstration in which he was the example of judgment? And so Jesus turns to his critics and says, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for good at doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. And to the man, this sounds like another teaching lesson. But this one maybe feels a little different because there's a lot of tension in the room. So maybe at this point, I wonder, did the man dare look up? Did he want to know who was asking the questions? And if he did, in that moment, did he look up and recognize that this is someone different? And did fear give way to hope? The man, the, Jesus said to the man, hold out your hand. And then he did what he came to do, to save and to restore. See, Jesus wasn't about to wait to the next day to bring heaven on earth. He wasn't about to wait to the next day because he was there right now. This wasn't just about rest, and it wasn't just about eternal salvation and a promise for the future. Jesus cared deeply about the present. Imagine if I asked you right now to stand up and come out the front. That is terrifying. Imagine if I asked you to come out the front and hold out to me your deepest, most painful wound, or your most shameful memory. What if I asked you to come out here and hold out to me the thing that you hope most desperately for? That one that you have begged God for on your knees and cried over so many times. Would you be terrified? That's probably how the man was feeling when he held his hand out towards Jesus. But there's something that the man didn't know yet. And it's in the next verse. It says, Jesus looked around at them, the critics, angrily, and he was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. You see, Jesus cared about them. He cared about his critics. He cared about them, and he cared about the man in front of him. One of the most striking things that we see about Jesus in his ministry is how emotional he is with the people that he encounters, how much he demonstrates his care for them. The Gospel of Matthew twice records that Jesus was moved with compassion on the crowd. And of course, the Gospel of John um, recounts the emphatic response Jesus has to the death of his friend Lazarus. And Mark includes this detail in the text, this insight into how Jesus was feeling because he wants us to know who Jesus is in that moment. He's drawing our attention to his connection to the people, a people that he cares deeply about. See, the incarnation, God becoming man, Jesus, is an extraordinary demonstration of love. He left the perfect bliss of heaven to come down and fix our relationship. His with the Father was unbroken, but we were out of it, and so he came down to rescue us and pull us back in it and reconcile us to the Father. He wants to lead us to that place again. He had watched people struggle under the law, and it wasn't working. They were incapable of rescuing themselves, and they had turned the pursuit of righteousness into a tool of oppression. And each time he stood in front of the religious leaders, the people that are supposed to lead people to God, he demonstrated the true nature of the kingdom and they didn't see it. And he was angry at them and deeply saddened by the stubbornness, stubbornness and the unwillingness of their hearts to see. 
that the kingdom they were so rigorously pursuing was right before their eyes. So the man in the story held out his hand and it was restored because that is who Jesus is. He wasn't there to make a fool out of him. He didn't come to cast judgment and shame upon him. He came to rescue him from a life-threatening condition. He came in love and restored the man's hand, restoring his livelihood, restoring his hope. This is who Jesus is for the man with the withered hand. And it's who Jesus is for us as well. Because he meets us where we are. He notices us and he calls us forward. And he offers us life. In uh, John 10, Jesus says, the thief, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. And I don't know where everyone is at today. I couldn't possibly. But I do know that we are all human, which means that every single one of us has something in need of restoration. To restore something means to bring it back to its former state, to bring back from a state of ruin or decay or disease. It means to bring back what is lost to replace, to renew, to establish and restore harmony. So the man held out his withered hand and it was restored. What are you carrying today that needs to be restored? Ben asked the question in week one of the series, what right now doesn't feel like heaven? We always talk about Jesus as the savior of the world, and rightly so, but eternal salvation is only part of the mission. Uh, Colossians says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't just come to save us from sin, he came so that we could have the fullness of life. And this just isn't about fullness of life in life eternal. It's about life right here and right now. Jesus didn't wait to heal the man. He restored his hand in that exact moment. And in fact, so much of Jesus' ministry seems to be an immediate effect. He changes the life and the the course of people's life that he encounters moment by moment by moment. And then forever in eternity through the cross. We have assurance of heaven in eternity because of what he did on the cross for us. And Revelation 21 talks about a new creation, a time when there is no sickness or pain. But what Mark is demonstrating in his gospel is Jesus bringing heaven to earth right here and right now. His ministry is salvation and restoration. I don't really think there's a need for a clever analogy or illustration today because I what I love about the Gospels is it tends to all be in the passage. First off, Jesus notices the man. I can tell you Jesus knows what you're facing. The God of Scripture who says, I know every hair on your head also knows every thought in your heart. So whether it's physical pain that needs healing, whether it's a relationship that needs restoring, or even if your faith needs a bit of a boost, he knows. Jesus calls the man forward. And he says to the man, hold out your hand. He's saying, show me where it hurts. And that's not because Jesus needs to know where it hurts, he already knows. But what he's trying to say to you there is, I want you to show me. Because he wants you to know that you can come to him at any time with anything. And he invites us to share with him how we're feeling, 
where we're hurting. And the man's hand was restored. Jesus acts. He isn't passive and he's not disengaged. And he says in John 5, to this very day my father is at work and I too am working. Perhaps the greatest tension that we live in is the now and not yet. In the way in which we see the kingdom of God at work in our lives and the way in which we don't. There's the tension of God's perfect timing where breakthrough sometimes is immediate. Sometimes we have to wait and sometimes it appears it's not happening at all. And these tensions are very challenging and often very impossible. But God is not absent. Heaven is at hand and Jesus is at work as he cares deeply for us. And the final verse to bring that home is actually in verse six. When at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot to kill Jesus. Sorry, plot how to kill Jesus. He has questioned their motives. Jesus has undermined their power and he's challenged all of their authority. And by now he's gathered so much attention that there are only two things to do. Join in or get rid of him. And the statement in verse six here is so significant because it shows us the intensity with which the Pharisees were determined to get rid of Jesus because they sided with the followers of Herod, which were their enemies. The Pharisees wanted the kingdom of David to be restored and um, the followers of Herod wanted Herod to be king. Neither of them wanted Jesus. And the only way they could stop him now is to kill him. So when Jesus says, does does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? Jesus knew that the answer was life. And he knew ultimately that in restoring that man's hand, in restoring our relationship with God, it would cost him everything. When Jesus asked the man to hold out his hand and then he restored his life, it cost him his own. That is who Jesus is. And that's why we can trust him in that tension because he has shown that he cares about us. We can invite him to speak into the dream and the ambition of our heart, to trust him with those things that we hold most dear. And we can ask him to help us, holding out to him those things that we care about most. And in trusting Jesus, we see heaven at hand. I'm just going to invite you all to stand. At the end of our service, after, after spending time in worship through song and after spending time in worship through communion and in worship through hearing from God's word, we're going to stand and wait and wait for him to respond.